Years ago, a co-worker shared with me a funny website she had found. It was basically the tale of a man who claimed that he had found a real-life Twilight Zone. In his story, he said that there was some sort of rupture or disruption in the normal space-time continuum that was centered around a stone arch that could, only sometimes, be found in a canyon south of the community of Aravaca. According to this person, there were a lot of odd occurrences happening in that spot, including shimmering lights, time distortions, apparitions, sights, sounds, even teleportation. He even claimed that sometimes you could look through this portal, and the scene on the other side wouldn't match the rest of the weather around the arch. It's a long, strange read, but he swears that every bit of it is true. If you are interested, you can do what I did and turn to Google, which will point you toward a long submission to the Tucson Weekly from 2003. Like I said, it's a long, strange read if you have the time. Of course, sitting here writing this from the safety of my desk inside the safety of my home, it's pretty easy to laugh about this. It just sounds so absurd to us who are used to the 9-to-5 grind and the pedestrian concerns of keeping gas in the car and food on the table. But, in the dark of night, or the vastness of the desert, things that sound absurd at any other time suddenly take on a whole new light, or darkness, as the case may be. Even if there isn't some real twilight zone in some obscure canyon in southern Arizona, the story itself is compelling. Isn't that why we sit around the campfire at night telling ghost stories in the first place? And since this episode releases on Sunday night of October 30th, meaning that tomorrow is October 31st, aka Halloween, I want to lean into that spirit. So sit back, maybe lower the lights, and let me take you on a tour of some of Arizona's more creepy stories. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Episode 118, Mysterious and Spooky. Our first story isn't so much spooky as it is mysterious, literally, as it appeared on the inaugural episode of Unsolved Mysteries. And that is the disappearance of Glenn and Bessie Hyde. By the way, this is the second time that we've referenced the long-running true crime TV show, which was actually one of my favorites as a kid. I know, surprising, right? But the story begins in 1928, when the newlyweds Glenn and Bessie Hyde arrived on the Colorado River. They had been married on April 10th in Twin Falls, Idaho, after having met on a passenger ship to Los Angeles the previous year. Following their marriage, the Hydes decided that the perfect honeymoon would be to float down 660 miles of the Green and Colorado Rivers, starting in Utah and ending at the Needles in California. And you'll sometimes see it written that 27-year-old Glenn was a thrill-seeker by nature, having experienced running rivers in Idaho, while 18-year-old Bessie was a novice. It's also been insinuated that her enthusiasm for the trip was less than her husband's, which is something that might come into play later. This part is also important. 
Glenn wanted to do this trip in a boat he built himself, a 20-foot sweep scow popular on rivers at the time. He also had a certain desire to run the river faster than had been done before, and put his new wife in the record books as the first woman to run the rapids in the Grand Canyon. Also, filled with a certain machismo, I guess, he was determined to go without life preservers. One person who saw them embark in Utah remarked that the boat looked more like a coffin to him. After launching on October 20th, the first part of the trip, from Green River, Utah, down to Lee's Ferry, was uneventful. Here, the ferry manager warned them that they should really bring a second vessel along, keeping some supplies in it so as not to put all their eggs in one basket, advice that Glenn steadfastly refused. By November 12th, they had landed their boat and hiked up the Bright Angel Trail in the Grand Canyon to resupply. And this is where they met Emery Kolb, a photographer who'd been living and navigating the canyon with his brother for decades. Kolb took a photo of the couple and then commenced questioning them about their trip and the boat they were using. And the photographer and canyon expert didn't have a high opinion of Glenn's homemade scow and was positively flabbergasted that the couple was attempting the run without life vests. He would later attest to none other than future Senator Barry Goldwater that he did everything in his power to convince them to take life jackets, including offering some of his own. Kolb also tried to get them to take inner tubes that he had in his boathouse, but they again refused. Here also, we start getting glimpses that Bessie wasn't as keen as her erstwhile husband. Kolb remarked that she seemed ready to end the trip, especially after the photographer invited them to stay overnight and enjoy a lecture that he gave. The next morning, freshly bathed and well-rested in who knows how long, the couple was seen by Kolb's daughter. Taking a look at how finely dressed the daughter was, and at her own well-worn clothes, Bessie is said to have remarked, quote, I wonder if I shall ever wear pretty shoes again. End quote. Still, on November 18, 1928, the couple left Kolb's to head back to the river and their boat. That would be the last time that anyone saw them alive. When they did not arrive at the Needles by December 11th, where Glenn's father was waiting for them, he began to grow anxious. Glenn's father offered a $1,000 reward for information about his son and daughter-in-law, and a search was launched that included small planes flying low through the Grand Canyon to try and spot anything from overhead. Kolb himself joined in the search and would be among those that discovered the Hyde Scow at milepost 238, just before Separation Canyon, where it was floating in some water about 30 feet from shore. Once on board, they found the boat to be in perfect working condition, with all the Hyde's gear stowed there, including food, Glenn's rifles, the pair's hiking boots, Bessie's camera, Bessie's suitcase, and a small notebook that Bessie had been using as something of a diary. Her last entry mentions passing Diamond Creek on November 30th, so 12 days after leaving Kolb's and about 13 miles from where the scow was found. However, there was no sign of the honeymooners anywhere, and over the years, the various searches for the couple, or their remains by this point, turned up nothing. As the years passed, to quote Galadriel, history became legend and the story of the Hyde's disappearance became favorite campfire fodder for those running down the Colorado's rapids. 
1971, 41 years after the disappearance, a rafter named Dale Billingsley claimed that he and his expedition had been joined on the river by an older woman who, though helpful, kind of kept to herself mostly. One night, their guide began recounting the tale of the hides and how no one knows what had become of them. And that's when this woman spoke up and claimed, in all seriousness, that she was Bessie Hyde. According to Billingsley, she had claimed that Glenn had become abusive, so to protect herself, she had stabbed him to death and then thrown his body into the river. She then had turned the boat loose and walked out of the canyon to Peach Springs, where she caught a Greyhound bus. However, later Billingsley tried to follow up with her, but this woman denied ever telling this story or claiming to be Bessie. And independent research also showed that this woman's life was pretty well documented and she couldn't possibly have been Bessie Hyde. The case took another turn in early 1977, after Kolb had died the previous December. When his grandson went to clean out his garage, he was shocked to find a complete skeleton in an old canvas boat up in the rafters. The skeleton belonged to a man of more than six feet and had a 32 caliber bullet lodged in the skull. Speculation began immediately that Kolb was somehow involved in the murder of Glenn, and that the skeleton had been hidden away to cover up the deed. There are any number of logistical factors that make this theory unsound, but it was shot down completely after forensic analysis by Dr. Walter Berkby at the University of Arizona showed that the skull shape was all wrong for Glenn Hyde. And a 2009 article in the Williams Grand Canyon News says that recent investigations showed that the skeleton most likely came from a man who had committed suicide at the canyon in 1933. How Kolb came to have it in his boathouse is still something of a mystery, but he had been a county coroner jury representative for the Grand Canyon, so it may have happened through that, somehow. But with those two theories shot down... That all leaves us with the same question. What happened to Glenn and Bessie Hyde? The most plausible theory is that they had somehow fallen over or had been swept overboard, and the boat had managed to come through the rapids without them. But in the end, with no evidence one way or the other, rafters on the Colorado well into the foreseeable future will continue to speculate on the pair of honeymooners who up and vanished inside the Grand Canyon. Next up is something completely different. While I was ideating what creepy things I could possibly talk about for this week's episode, I suddenly realized that I could turn to Arizona's indigenous peoples for just the right thing. And that thing is skinwalkers. However, this comes with a giant caveat. I'm going to tread very lightly on this subject for a few reasons. The first is that, as you may have noticed by now, I don't have a single drop of Amerindian blood in me, so I could never do the topic true justice. The second is that there is a lot of reluctance to talk about this lore with people outside the Amerindian community, and I want to respect the cultural desire for privacy while also trying to make sure I represent their beliefs when it comes to Arizona's supernatural landscape. It's an incredibly tough needle to thread. And third, 
There is some lore that just talking about skinwalkers means you'll have an encounter with one, and none of us want that. The stories of skinwalkers mainly come from the Navajo and the Hopi, though I believe that certain groups of the Apache and Ute, as well as some other Puebloan peoples, have their own versions as well. To put it simply, a skinwalker is a type of harmful witch that, through a corruption of good medicine, is able to transform into, control, or disguise themselves as an animal. To do this, they wear the pelt of some predatory animals such as a coyote or a bear, which is what the term skinwalker refers to. The Navajo word for them is, and I'm so very sorry for how I'm going to butcher this, yi which literally means, by means of it, it goes on all fours. Once transformed, a skinwalker will do all sorts of evil and malicious deeds. Essentially, they are the antithesis of everything good in Navajo culture, especially the medicine that healers and others do that help people. And that's the extent of the lore that I will recount, because of all the reasons that I listed above, and I'm not sure what's real lore and what's just something someone put on the internet. However, I will say that belief in skinwalkers is very much alive in the cryptozoological community, though here they seem to morph into something more akin to the Wendigo, or a malicious boogeyman-type creature that tries to lure people into the woods using the voice of a loved or trusted person. I actually stumbled upon a fun debate about whether skinwalker sightings can happen outside of the Southwest or not, with some people reporting eerie experiences at night in the woods far from Arizona. Others, however, claim that skinwalkers can only be found near the Amerindian tribes with lore about them. In either case, a not insignificant amount of people are willing to both believe in or post about encounters on or near the reservation with strange creatures that ooze maliciousness. All this is just to say that the next time you go up to the Rim or the Colorado Plateau, there might be something more than the Mogollon Monster waiting for you. Our next story comes to us courtesy of listener Bobby S., who specifically asked for me to talk about the Apache Death Cave. The Apache Death Cave can be found near the defunct roadside stop that is Two Guns, on I-40 just before the turnoff to Meteor Crater as you head east out of Flagstaff. The place has quite the colorful past that I'm going to try to piece together for you. The main story goes that in 1878, a group of Apache raided a Navajo encampment near the Little Colorado River, killing all but three girls whom they kidnapped. Enraged by this, a group of 25 Navajo went in pursuit. And the Navajo were able to find their foe hiding in this cave, which is basically a split in the earth that is obscured in a side canyon from the infamous Canyon Diablo. After they had ascertained that the three girls were already dead, the Navajo decided to enact revenge. They supposedly lit a fire at the mouth of the cave and fired at any Apache that tried to escape the suffocating smoke. In the end, 42 Apache lay dead, either from asphyxiation or from Navajo bullets. You often read that the native peoples now avoid the place, considering it cursed, and that the dead Apache supposedly haunt this very eerie spot. Except, here's the thing. There is a surprising lack of evidence that this incident ever happened. 
and there is good reason to suspect that the whole tale was the product of the mind of Western author Gladwell Richardson, who actually lived and worked at Two Guns in the mid-20th century. And state historian Marshall Trimble, who I've noted several times loves a good yarn, has repeated Richardson's story about the Death Cave, which could account for its wide dispersal. If that sounds a bit disappointing, take heart, because Two Guns has a real, sordid history all of its own. In the early 1920s, the land around the cave was worked by Earl and Louise Cundiff, who had built a nice stopping point for those riding along the legendary Route 66, including a trading post, restaurant, gas station, and post office. In 1925, part of their land was leased by an eccentric character named Harry E. Miller, who opened his own zoo complete with mountain lions and gila monsters. You can still see the remnants of this zoo if you visit, by the way. But Miller, well, I said he was eccentric, right? He claimed to have worked with Western silent film actor William Two Guns Hart, who always carried a pair of Colt 1851 Navy revolvers in his films, and it's from Miller's connection that this little pit stop got its name, though from what we know now, it's doubtful that Two Guns Hart ever knew Miller at all. Miller also claimed to be part Apache, and alternatively asked to be called Indian Miller and Chief Crazy Thunder. Being the unscrupulous type, he had plans to jazz up the nearby cave, which he always referred to as the Mystery Cave, with lights, a concession stand, and even a dance floor. That never happened because A, it would be a horribly small dance floor, and B, who'd want to go dancing there? There's also a rumor that he sold skull fragments and other skeletal bits of the Apache found in the cave, but that's pretty dubious because, as I said, there weren't any in the cave to begin with. However, if there had been, I could see him selling them. What we do know is that about a year after leasing the land, Chief Crazy Thunder went a little crazy. He got into a heated argument with his landlord and Miller shot and killed him. And believe it or not, he managed to weasel out of a murder charge. However, this luck didn't continue, and pretty much everything in his zoo tried, mostly successfully, to take a bite out of him, including the mountain lions and the Gila monster. He would later abscond from Arizona, making sure to take ample amounts of turquoise jewelry, silver, and other expensive items with him. And two guns would carry on, the property being taken over by several different owners, but in 1971, the lone gas station caught fire, and that proved to be the community's downfall. Folks started getting their gas elsewhere, and Two Guns attractions were left to crumble and to be covered in graffiti. So, in the end, the community became one of the spookiest things of all. A ghost town. Which is too good a segue to pass up, so... Now it's time to talk about some of these specters and spooks said to be still lurking around the Grand Canyon State. Everyone loves a good ghost story, which is why I included so many in last year's Halloween episode. This year I went searching for more and trying to touch on parts of the state that I didn't get to last time. And since it's now playing such a prominent part in our main narrative, I think we first need to start in the Salt River Valley. But before we get to Phoenix proper, we first need to head a little to the east and stop at Casey Moore's Oyster House, which sits at 9th Avenue and Ash in downtown Tempe. 
Casey Morris began life in 1910 as the home for a prominent couple William and Mary Murr, and was occupied by the family up till Mary's death in 1940, William having died some years earlier. After that, legend tells us that the house became a boarding house and actually a bordello, and that it was used by those darn teenagers and young adults to drink, do drugs, and get into all sorts of general debauchery. You know, just the recipe you need for a good haunted house. It became a restaurant in 1973, and then eventually the Irish pub and seafood place that we know today in 1986. Ever since then, ghosts and other supernatural phenomena have been reported at Casey Moore's, and a number of travel websites have actually voted it one of the most haunted bars and or restaurants in the country. Who knew we kept rankings of such things? Neighbors across the street from the restaurant have often reported a kind of glow coming from the second-story window, and the image of a woman, sometimes with a man, dancing by the window for neighbors to see. And this apparition is most often spotted around 4 a.m., and on a handful of occasions, neighbors have actually called the police to report strange people in the restaurant, only for law enforcement to arrive and to find the place empty and the alarm system still active. Many actually believe these to be the ghosts of the Murs, happy to see their house restored and wanting to dance to the music in the restaurant. Another spirit is said to be the ghost of a young woman who was killed, some say by her ex-boyfriend, during the house's days of debauchery. This ghost, however, appears during business hours and is said to have dark hair and light eyes. One source says that she appears at the corner of the eye, staring at you until you turn to acknowledge her and then she vanishes. Another story is that she will get angry if she witnesses a romantic dinner happening. Staff have also reported all the usual paranormal repertoire. Pictures flying off walls, silverware off tables, and finding tables and chairs moved after the restaurant has been closed up for the night. Before we leave the East Valley, I want to take a swing south to Chandler. Here we have Chandler High School, which was built in 1914 and is one of the oldest buildings in the entire city. Unfortunately, I can't seem to find too many concrete details, but apparently the second floor of the oldest building, called Old Main, is a hotbed for unexplained voices and apparitions. Others have told of seeing a ghost in the school's auditorium. I found a local news segment from 2009 where faculty and staff alike claim to have seen these phenomenon, but there was no guess about who might be causing these hauntings, which makes for kind of a disappointing story, to be honest. Alright, let's head into Phoenix proper then, and maybe take in a show at the Orpheum Theater. The Orpheum opened its doors in 1929 as part of the nationwide Orpheum Circuit of Theaters, which started in San Francisco in 1886. Over the years, it would change hands periodically before it was bought by the city of Phoenix in 1984, which renovated the space into the entertainment venue it is today. But, as with virtually any building that old, the Orpheum is said to play host to the otherworldly. The theater is said to be the home to at least four ghosts, though the most famous is Maddie. She's said to be younger, some say a small girl, some say she's a youth of around 12. While seen and experienced around the theater, her main haunt, if you'll pardon the pun, is the mezzanine, where she acts as something of a stewardess over the patrons. She's been known to shush or nudge noisy people during performances. 
At least once, she slapped the back of a young man's head when he and his lady friend, thinking they were alone, were in the middle of making out. Once, she was supposedly spotted by a traveling troop of Chinese acrobats who thought they watched a young girl about to jump off the balcony, only for the girl to take a few steps off said balcony and promptly disappear. Though she is widely acknowledged by the theater, no one is really sure who Maddie is. There is no one by the name of Maddie or Madeline or Madison or other variations with any connections to the Orpheum, so there are no clues about who she might have been in life. As for the theater's other spirits, they are a tightly held secret by the theater itself, which only spills the beans if you go on a specialty ghost tour that they hold. And I have to say, hiding your ghost behind a paywall? That is capitalism at its finest. Before leaving Phoenix, let's skip a few blocks over to the east and find ourselves at Heritage Square, that small slice of Victorian living that sits at the corner of Monroe and 7th Street, right across Adams from the famous Pizzeria Bianco. Specifically, we're going to look at the Rossin House, which was built in 1895 for the family of Dr. Ronald Lee Rossin, who was an army surgeon that went into politics. Just as his house was completed, he even became Phoenix's 11th mayor, though he resigned from the office in 1896, mainly because he was the lone Democrat among a city council full of Republicans. The family would wind up leaving Phoenix to Los Angeles in 1897, possibly because of financial difficulties. The house itself was built of brick in the Queen Anne style of Victorian architecture, and it actually kind of reminds me of Whipstaff Manor from Casper, and when it was first built, had all the amenities of the time. Electricity, a telephone, a doorbell, a bathroom that was both indoors and upstairs, and cold and hot running water. Today, it's operated as a museum to showcase what life in Phoenix was like at the turn of the 20th century. And that's where the hauntings come in. Specifically, the story goes that a caretaker was shot outside of the museum in the 1980s by a random thug, and his ghost has decided not to leave. Plenty of modern caretakers and staff will swear that they've seen the apparition of the dead caretaker, sometimes just out of the periphery of their vision. At other times, people have heard the sounds of footsteps or of someone going through the house, but at times when no one was there. Caretakers have even sworn that they'll be locked out of rooms in the house when no one else was around and that items have moved about on their own. Possibly unique to the Rossin house is the phenomenon where guests and staff alike will feel a blast of heat coming out of the old, mostly unused, fireplace. So it appears that the old caretaker continues to make his rounds despite punching out some four decades ago. To finish up today, we are going to jump way to the south, because I would be remiss if I didn't include at least one ghost story from Tucson. For that, we need to turn to the Hotel Congress. The hotel dates back to 1919, when the cattle and railroad industries were making Tucson boom. In fact, the rear door to the hotel actually exited into the Southern Pacific Railroad Station, so you could say that it really did have the best location. Its other claim to fame is that infamous gangster John Dillinger and his cronies stayed at the hotel in 1934, and it was the tip from some Tucson firemen that finally brought them into justice. But while stories of gangsters are fun, 
they aren't why we're here, right? The hotel's ghosts are varied, but the most famous might be the spirit in room 242. This is the ghost of a woman who killed herself in the room's bathroom in the mid-90s. One source even claims it was after a standoff with police. Since then, guests have reported hearing her talk to them or even appearing in their nightmares. Others have felt her sit next to them in bed or have even seen her at the foot of the bed or outside the room in the hallway. A more impish kind of ghost is said to be the spirit of a man named Vince, who actually lived in the hotel for three and a half decades. It seems that Vince was in the habit of using butter knives from the cafe downstairs as make-do screwdrivers whenever he needed to fix something around his room. So to this day, staff claims that they find butter knives in odd locations all over the hotel, which they attribute to Vince still DIYing it. Another apparition, that of a man in a gray suit called T.S. by staff, is often seen peeking out of one of these second-story windows. And finally, there's a woman often experienced around the reception area staircase. She has been described as a beautiful woman in a black Victorian gown. But the reason I say that she is experienced is because she is not seen so much as she is smelled. Apparently, guests and staff will occasionally get strong hints of roses, which are powerful but fleeting, and that's the sign this female ghost is making her presence known. I'm afraid that I ran out of time and could only hit up this one location in Tucson today, but there are plenty more ghost stories for when Halloween comes around next year. For now, though, it's time to hang up my ghost hunter hat and pick up the books once again. So join me next week when we do a deep dive into the cattle and sheep industries in Arizona and how there was profit and ecological disaster to be found out on the range. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Happy Halloween.